And I got so much more to say But I don't wanna talk to myself though I'm not a leaver, I'm a stayer Yeah, you know that I'm a team player This Hello and welcome to episode 1031 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hi. Doing two more team previews today, so we're going to talk later in the episode to Jen Mac Ramos, Stomper's assistant GM and Rockies expert about the Rockies. But before that, we're going to talk to Meg Rowley of Baseball Prospectus about the Mariners. And even before that... We're just going to banter briefly. So this will start off with Rockies-related banter. And this concerns Ian Desmond, who had a injury and bad news and a hand fracture. And we'll talk about that in the Rockies preview. But this was before he was hit by a rookie Davis pitch and injured by it. This is from John Heyman's story about teams that could surprise last year. And here's the lead. First, it has the dateline or whatever you call it when it says where a city says where the article was written for for no real reason. Scottsdale, Arizona, when new Rockies manager Bud Black was introduced to new Rockies first baseman Ian Desmond, Desmond told him, quote, I am a baseball player. (laughs) This this quote (laughs) caught both of our eyes, all of our eyes, because he never returns to... The quote, like I was expecting that later in the piece, Heyman would explain the significance of that quote or like what it was actually intended to mean or how Bud Black took it or something. But he never really comes back to it except to say that Desmond is a a no-nonsense guy, basically. So I think we've both been just picturing this scene where Bud Black <laughs> is introduced to Ian Desmond and Ian Desmond says, I am a baseball player. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, if you get a quote, sometimes you interview a player or you hear an anecdote and it's not very good. You don't have anything to really go on, but you still want to maybe try to use it or make some yeah. use of it. And so th- this feels like John Hammond had a story here at a very brief story. It consisted of two lines. Maybe. No, <laughs> I, I should say one. It's one line. And he heard it and he thought, OK, that's an anecdote. I never remember. I'm just going to shoehorn this not only into an article, but into a lead. But I can't imagine a less anything. It's nothing. There's no there's no story to it. It's just, hi, I'm Bud Black. Hello, I am Ian Desmond. I am a baseball player. I don't know who this speaks to worse because Bud Black was a manager in the National League for a major league team between 2007 and 2015. To say nothing of the fact that he's just someone who knows baseball, yeah. Ian Desmond was an everyday player for a prominent National League team between 2009 and 2015. <laughs> So, Biggest signing of the team's offseason, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there, was, there was a press conference. Could have at least made a name tag for him or something so that he wouldn't have to go around introducing himself and his profession. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you hear people say about a baseball player that he's a baseball player. And that's, I think we all take it to mean whatever. He's scrappy. He's a lunch pail player. Like a manager will say that about one of his players. Oh, he's he's a baseball player. And it sounds sort of silly. It looks silly in print, but we all understand what it means. It usually doesn't work the other way, at least. I don't recall <laughs> seeing a baseball player announce that he's a baseball player as if he's like some sort of Pokemon or something who who just announces who he is and what he does whenever he meets you. I I would assume like have you thought about what the context because Heyman makes it sound as if this was the first exchange. This was the first thing that Desmond said to Black, but that's not necessarily the case. He could have just said I am a baseball player at any point in that conversation. So have you given any thought to what the likely context was? Well, so the way that I choose to picture this, and this is varied, but the way I choose to picture this right now is that you have how is it pronounced? British? British? British Jeff British? British <laughs> this has come up before on this podcast. I don't know. I think British. Okay, let's say British, but it could be British. I'm going <laughs> to... British. He's not British. Okay, so the way that I picture it is you have Bud Black, Ian Desmond, and Jeff British, and Jeff British is saying, Bud Black, I'd like you to meet Ian Desmond, and he gestures Ian Desmond, and then Bud Black and Ian Desmond shake hands, and then there's kind of the, this like awkward pause, and then Bud Black is like, I don't know what to make of this, and Ian Desmond says, oh, and by the way, I'm a baseball player, and then the following line is, and I'm on your team. We're being introduced because I will play baseball for you in this season 
and for following seasons to come. So yeah. that's the best I have right now, even though Bud Black has <laughs> certainly made managerial decisions specifically taking into consideration Ian Desmond, mm-hmm. the baseball player. I don't think he looks particularly different. So I don't know if this conveys that Ian Desmond thinks really poorly of Bud Black or if Ian Desmond <laughs> thinks really poorly of himself and thinks yeah. that maybe Bud Black won't recognize him <laughs> as a baseball player and clearly not like a front office ops kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe the unfun interpretation is that this was mid-conversation. Maybe Black was asking him what position he wants to play or or what position he likes to play because that's been a topic of discussion because no one could understand why the Rockies would sign Desmond and stick him at first base when he's not a great hitter for a first baseman and he has some ability to at least stand at other positions semi-convincingly. So maybe that's how it came up. Like Black was either asking him what he wants to play or telling him what he would play. And Desmond was just saying, I'm a baseball player, so I'll I'll play baseball wherever you pencil me into the lineup card. That's that's my best hypothesis yeah, for that's, this. That's my actual interpretation. I think that's what this <laughs> means. I'm going to be honest. I didn't really read this section because I saw the first line and I thought, that's great. I'm going to stop there. Uh, yeah. So it's presumably just about, well, yeah, he's got a position, but as far as he's concerned, all he wants to do is play baseball wherever he can play. <laughs> and there are opportunities in Colorado with a manager yep. who doesn't know who Ian Desmond is. <laughs> well, now maybe he does. And the other bit of banter that I wanted to share Michael Clare, Effectively Wild listener, former guest slash writer for MLB.com's Cut Foresight, tweeted this snippet that he found the other day. And I asked him where he got this, and he told me this was from a book. It was from the book Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, and it's an anecdote about... Dick Williams, the Hall of Fame manager, and here is the quote from this book. As a minor league manager, Williams got into such an intense fistfight with one of his own players that he ended up soiling himself. (laughs) Rather than reacting with embarrassment, the manager called a team meeting, held his pants aloft, and told his players, if this is what it takes to win, everybody in this room will be wearing diapers. (laughs) <laughs> Michael Clare proposed this as uh, on this podcast we've talked about burn the ships before it's a very common motivation tactic in the sports world uh, the story of Cortez burning the ships so that his troops would have nowhere to retreat and sending a signal to them that they had nothing to do but win there was no way out of this and every sports team has co-opted that saying and so we've kind of chronicled how much it has spread. Michael suggests that this replace burn the ships, that that holding your soiled pants aloft should be the new motivation tactic. I'm trying to think of how I would react. Like you've been on baseball teams before. How would you react if your manager held his soiled pants aloft (laughs) and questioned your dedication if, if you didn't soil your pants yourself? I'm I can't figure out what the message is. Like he he fought a player, which is not a great thing for a manager to do, usually. Soiled himself during the fight, which I don't know how that happens exactly, but I haven't been in that many fist <laughs> he was, fights he was myself. A very but, old manager. I mean, this was as a minor league manager, so I'm assuming this was early oh, no. in his career. Oh <laughs> so, no. So so I don't know how this happened exactly. I don't maybe you, you get hit in exactly the wrong spot and, and that's what happens. I don't know. But that's what happened. So I guess he's <laughs> saying that you should just be willing to fight so hard that you soil yourself. And yeah. <laughs> yeah that, and then you just continue to fight i suppose because right. what's important is not your own hygiene and comfort but it's <laughs> it's not what's expression it's i guess it's it's not the soiled pants in the fight it's the fight in the soiled pants would be one way i'm sorry to violate our own language here but i guess the equivalent of burn the ships would be earn the shits <laughs> Maybe this is the best that I can spin here. When I yeah. first read this anecdote, because I saw it on Twitter because it was hilarious, I was reading it, but I am not I'm not very well informed about baseball history. This is an admitted blind spot. Just doing this podcast has made me a little smarter. There's a lot of baseball that's already happened. So much more yeah. that will happen this year. I don't know if you know that. There's been like more than a century. This is crazy. <laughs> I but I was reading that anecdote, but I, I think of everything in terms of like recent or modern day that I saw that and I thought, Dick Williams, the Reds front 
their general manager <laughs> shit himself in a, in a clubhouse fight with a player. I never even knew he was a manager, let alone one of such a loose colon. But then I had to think about it a little more. And because someone had sent us an anecdote about how Dick Williams, the Reds general manager, had what he uh, he I don't know if he streaked, but he he ran the field. Yeah, right? he ran onto the field. What when the Reds won the World Series, I think, and there's a. A video of them winning and it's, I don't know, Norm Charlton or something pitching and then the now Reds GM Dick Williams who <laughs> is part of the, the family that, that runs the Reds and so that's why he was doing that presumably but not the the most professional thing to do yeah. but he was a teenager at that time I guess so maybe it's excusable but, but yes. <laughs> we've, we've talked about the general manager Dick Williams before as being kind of like a he seems kind of boring and nondescript, and he has this like old school, boring general manager name that just wouldn't even give you reason to think twice about him. But then I started thinking he has this like rich backstory where he's <laughs> so much more of a character. And then I read this anecdote about a Dick Williams soiling his own pants in a clubhouse <laughs> fight, and I thought I have vastly <laughs> underestimated the, amount, the level of intrigue I should hold in this general manager. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know if we can follow that with anything other than a Mariners preview. So <laughs> let's take a quick break. We'll be back to talk about baseball teams. All right, so we are going to talk about the Seattle Mariners now, and who better to talk about the Mariners with than Baseball Prospectus' own Meg Rally? Hi, Meg. Hi. I would ask you what Jerry Depoto did since the last time I asked you that, but I don't know if we have that long. I guess he, he hasn't made any major moves, but he's made many minor trades in the, I don't know, month or so since I last asked you that, but nothing that's dramatically changed the landscape, I suppose. No, although true to form, when we are scheduled to talk, he did make a trade today. He (laughs) (laughs) sent away Pat Venditti to the Phillies, I guess, for an outfielder because, you know, it's his favorite thing. Yeah. I guess I can't use the song on this podcast. That's probably a Ringer branded theme song <laughs> for Jerry Depoto. I won't so, infringe on on my other co-hosts' copyright. That is a great mercy. <laughs> uh, we'll ask some questions about the 2017 Mariners in just a moment, but it seems like a lot of the discussion about the Mariners and about why Jerry Depoto has made all these moves and why he's made the moves he's made has centered on the fact that there's a window and it's closing and they're going to be bad and there's no farm system and so they have to try to be good in the next year or two or else they're going to go downhill and it's sort of the same conversation we were all having about the tigers and i guess that's kind of sort of happened to the tigers but not totally they're still a contending team so is it fair to make that definitive pronouncement that the mariners have to win in the next year or two or else and if it's not what's the route to the Mariners being a team that can succeed beyond whatever the window for Cano and Cruz and Felix is. Well, I mean, I, I think that they, they do not have endless possibilities. I mean, I guess they do because, you know, it's the world. But um, <laughs> their possibilities seem to be a little more limited than you would get from from other teams because you don't have any depth in the farm. And you have guys who are just going to keep getting older because that's what happens to humans. So, um, you know, presumably Felix, who I think we'll probably talk about him a little later, but, you know, Felix is certainly not who he was, whatever he ends up being this year. And, you know, despite Cano's bounce back last Last year, we can expect that he will start to decline at some point. And I don't know, Nelson Cruz will stop hitting 40 home runs a year someday, although based on his <laughs> performance in the World Baseball Classic, hopefully it's not anytime soon. So I think you do have sort of some urgency from those guys because it isn't clear who would replace them if uh, if they got really bad and they didn't go anywhere. But there is some young talent on this team, but not a lot. So I think that they should try to contend this year and next because the avenue by which they would do that gets a lot uh, narrower, mixing metaphors and stuff, but after that. And, you know, you look at these guys and a lot of the staples who are under control for a long time are older and they're not in the primes of their career anymore. So uh, I do think there is some urgency 
how much I think we will get a better sense of as the season goes on, but I don't think their window is open indefinitely. This is sort of speculative, but thankfully you have to answer it and not me. The Mariners have had a, a poorly rated farm system for a number of years. Of course, this is what you're just talking about, but they're also coming off a year where they sent, what, every, almost every affiliate to whatever the minor league playoffs are? They all went. Yeah, okay, perfect. They all went. Every league that had playoffs had a Mariners representative. In it, obviously, with the new organizational approach, you get new people in charge of the Miners. Long story short, do you have sort of renewed confidence, leading question here, that there are talented players in the system who maybe couldn't really blossom under previous administrations, so maybe their uh, their prospect status was sort of diminished and it could still be, I don't know, rejuvenated? Is there more talent in the farm system now that there are actually people who can develop talent? I hate this question. You're so mean to make me answer this. <laughs> Let me answer it in a, in a not answering it way, which is to say that I think that this administration has a, a much greater ability to maximize the talent that they have than Zorensic certainly did. So we have seen guys who had issues and were not doing all that well seem to improve in the last year. And uh, if nothing else, there seems to be really consistent communication between levels, which I think, you know, when we get down to the diagnosis of what went wrong under Jack seems to have been the conclusion, right, that these guys were getting conflicting messages all along the path to the majors. And it's not surprising that even really good prospects, guys who uh, the Mariners thought would hit well and do well would struggle with that kind of inconsistency in player development. So I think that there's probably more talent there than there was because they're going to get more out of these guys, but they don't have they still don't have that sort of impact player that's close to the majors in the system, at least not that we've seen, you know, as, as fun as Tyler O'Neill hitting home runs off the tee and having improved plate discipline is, he's not, he's not anyone who you're going to put at, see at the top of a prospect list, although he did rank as sort of a top 100 prospect this year. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's as much as I'm going to. I wasn't actually <laughs> sure if you could hit a home run off of a tee. So this, your answer did at least give me some clarification. It's actually really cool. <laughs> the video of it is pretty neat. You're like, oh, wow, what's it like to be that strong? I can't imagine. <laughs> so everyone's written about Felix. Jeff wrote about him. I wrote about him recently. You've probably written about him. Everyone's written about him. And Jeff and I kind of tried to see the upside in our articles and tried to come up with reasons why maybe Felix wouldn't be doomed to just follow the career progression that everyone does, which is that you throw slower and slower and you get worse and worse, which has been the case with him lately. I wrote my piece after his first spring training outing of the year, which was tracked and his velocity did seem to be up a bit and that was a good sign because pitchers usually throw softer in spring training, especially one would think at the start of spring training. So what's your level of optimism or your realistic hope for this season? My realistic hope, those are funny things to put together. Um, <laughs> I think that given that he has never really had to prepare going into the season quite like he has and like he seems to have going into this year and that they are seeing increased velocity and he you know, seems to be on a mission for whatever that's worth to regain some of his form, I guess 2015, Felix. I mean, I don't think we're going to see 2014 Felix again. And that makes me sad, but I don't, I feel like that's probably not likely. But, you know, he had stretches where he looked okay last year and hopefully with improved health and, you know, some better conditioning going into the year and increased velocity. And I mean, a lot of it was just not being able to command anything last year. So it wasn't even that, it wasn't just the velocity, it was that he couldn't, he wasn't working ahead of guys. He was often getting behind. He was walking guys at a much higher rate than he had previously. And so he was sort of compounding problems and then coupling that with a, a defense that wasn't very good. So I don't know, 2015 Felix would be great. I think 2015 Felix at the top of that rotation makes this team a much better team than they were last year. Okay. So Felix... Iwakuma, Paxton Smiley, and if you want to tell jokes, Gallardo, Miranda, Heston. Which of those starting pitchers, or or someone else, but which of the starting pitchers do you think finishes the season with enough innings and the lowest ERA? I mean, it's it's Paxton, I think, right? right. I mean, are we going to get to... That was a test question, then, yes. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we've had this conversation before. I don't know that we have that much time, but, like, it's definitely Paxton. As, As long as he's healthy... What we saw from him last year, both in terms of the velocity and sort of an increased ability to throw strikes, was 
just a sight to see. I mean, he's a tremendous amount of fun and he looks like he's maintained good physical form coming into the year and the velocity has looked good in the early going in spring and, you know, provided that he can like remain blister free and not get hit by line drives from angels again. I think that, I don't know that we can say breakout year because I think you've talked about this, like he kind of broke out last year. It was just Mm -hmm. that it was over a short period, but, um, you know, if we see anything like that over a full season, I think he's easily the best pitcher on the staff. That's the case with every breakout player though, right? Breakout player is one of my pet peeves because it's either someone who was already really good and whoever's picking him as a breakout player just thinks that people haven't heard of him or something, or he was already really good, but for not that long, like no one's actually good at predicting who's going to break out who was not good before. If anyone could do that consistently, that'd be very valuable. But that's never what the breakout player pick is. So I never know what to say when someone asks me for a breakout player. So hopefully no one will. So can you kind of summarize the, I don't know, the the takeaway? How are the Mariners different from what they were in September, October, the net effect of all of the many, many, many moves that DePoto made. What was the connecting philosophy between them and what is the result? So I think the the biggest change is going to be improved defense and improved base running, right? So when you look at the additions that they made in the outfield, Dyson, Hannah Gurr, and I have to apologize to him and his family because I said his name wrong <laughs> twice on your podcast like a monster. Sorry. Making up for it now. Yeah, I feel bad about that. Sorry, Mitch, you're having a great spring. <laughs> the improved defense uh, in the outfield is pretty dramatic. I mean, it's only spring training and all the usual caveats, but even just watching this group in spring training, it's amazing the difference uh, in, say, routes to the ball between Gerard Dyson and Nori Aoki. Sorry, Ben, those are like dramatically (laughs) different and your blood pressure feels really different when you're watching them. So I think the defense will be improved not only in the outfield, but I mean, if we get a full season of Mike Zanino at catcher, you're also going to have, you know, improved defense there because Chris Iannetta did not repeat his 2015 and 2016. And then if you look at the base running, I mean, I, I was looking at it today, I think, uh, BP had the Mariners 29th in base running last year. I think you guys at Fangraphs had them like 26th. They were a really bad base running team. And when you, you know, bring in hopefully a healthy over the whole season, Martin with Segura and Dyson and like even, um, some of the new guys can run pretty well. I think that hopefully they actually might steal a base or two and not look ridiculous when they're doing it. So I think that speed both uh, on the base paths and in the outfield is really where we're seeing the, the big difference. So there's really no getting around it. We have to talk about Mike Zanino. He's, you know, <laughs> he, there's, I don't know if there are more volatile regular catchers or at least projected regular catchers in the game this coming season. I think everybody who's ever watched Zanino knows he's talented defensively, knows he can hit the crap out of the ball, uh, and knows that very often he doesn't hit anything out of the ball. Last year, of course, he had what seemed like sort of a little breakout, but he also struck out a third of the time, which is what he's always done. So understanding that you might have a biased opinion on Mike Zanino, I don't know, but just moving forward, what do you actually expect to see out of Mike Zanino? And do you think that he will take that regular job by the whatever the expression is? Or are, is there going to be a lot of Carlos Ruiz? I uh, have always been fond of him. So you're right to say that there is a bit of bias here. But I think if we want to look for encouraging signs with him that we might translate into this season, even at the end of last season when you know he was chasing more and sort of falling back into some bad habits and uh, the strikeout rate went up, he still was weirdly walking a lot. Um, so I think there is some reason to be optimistic about Im- improved plate discipline. He seems to take um, Scott Brocious, who's been promoted and will be with the big league club this year, uh, pretty seriously. He was one of the guys who sort of helped him turn the swing around uh, in Tacoma, and he's going to be there with him. And I don't know, it's this might be a little too soft to say, but like it's encouraging to hear them talk about Zanino in a way that is realistic. Like They know he is always going to have a fair amount of strikeout in his game, and they will trade that provided that the power is there and he's able to get on base and walk a little bit. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think he's probably one of the harder players to project because we still don't exactly know what he in a non-broken form looks like. You know, he's tearing it up in spring again. So (laughs) it's not (laughs) as if he's hitting 200 or never getting on base. But I think that they seem like they would be happy with him if he can hit two. 30, 225, walk a little bit, hit a bunch of home runs, and then pair that with his defense. Um, I think that he's a better op- option than 
than Ruiz and provided that he gets, you know, some days off and isn't a total disaster, it could be, could be fine watching his plate appearances in spring training, which I probably do with more rapt attention than anyone but his family. I mean, he's not, uh, chasing yet. So that's good. <laughs> Keep it up, Mike. <laughs> Just hit a little bit. His family might be sick of watching him play baseball by now, actually. He's been doing it for so long. <laughs> yeah. John Heyman reported last week that Jason Hamill was almost a Mariner, that he was talking to the team about signing a one-year $10 million deal, and then he changed agents, and he ended up signing with the Royals for two years and $16 million, and then DePoto went out and got Smiley and got Gallardo. Do you wish that he hadn't changed his mind? Would you rather have Jason Hamill and something than what DePoto ended up doing? I mean, if there's a way we can go back in time and get Jason Hamill, Andrew Smiley. That that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Let's let's work with that time machine, because uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I, I mean, yeah, it, it would be preferable. Gallardo is has not been good and has not shown um, signs in the early going here that there's a lot to be different. I mean, I watched his WBC start and he gave up some home runs, which was the problem before. So I think that that's going to be um, that bottom of the rotation is going to be a problem uh, unless he can turn things around. I think they've liked what they've seen so far out of Ariel Miranda, although he got roughed up in his start today. So who knows? I think the bottom of the rotation is going to be a problem. And if any of the guys at the top get hurt, they're going to wish they had Hamill, but they'll probably wish they had him all along. I don't know if it's fair to break out the bottom of the rotation for this question, but if you were to look at the Mariners as an overall roster as they are built and projected to play forward. Which position of, I guess, the nine plus rotation plus bullpen, what position gives you the most amount of, I don't know, anxiety? What do you feel the worst about? Because it seems like there is a potential answer everywhere, but I guess you could say that for any team. I think the rotation, I mean, bullpens always have the potential to be disastrous, so it feels weird to fixate on bullpen anxiety because there are some good pieces in there and it's going to be what it is. Uh, it's, it's the rotation. I mean, the worst case scenario that they have is that Felix isn't good. Paxton gets hurt. Kuma gets hurt, which despite having like the, the most innings pitched of any starter last year is always a possibility with him. Uh, Gallardo is a disaster and Drew Smiley's fine, but not great. I mean, there, there's a path to that rotation being really bad and they don't have a lot of depth to make up for it in the minors or, I mean, I guess they can stretch out Miranda um, from the bullpen, but they don't have a lot of depth behind it. So I think that's the biggest uh, weakness, both in terms of its potential for absolute disaster and just how mediocre it could end up being outside of Paxton. How do you think the first base battle will play out between Vogelbach and Valencia and Peterson and anyone else who's involved, or how would you like to see it play out? I mean, I think it it would it would be such a, a lovely story, a great story, if Daniel Vogelback ends up being this great hitter. He's he's had an okay going of it in the spring, although his bat, I think, has never really been the big concern at first base. Uh, they're doing that thing that they do when guys are sort of iffy defensively, where they're really uh, admiring his his try hard and his boxy, which can sometimes be even scarier to hear than he's just doing poorly. I think that, I don't know, this might seem unusual to say because he's Vogelbach's a rookie, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if by the middle of the season we kind of forget that Danny Valencia is on the Mariners. <laughs> Not because Vogelbach will necessarily play so much better, but he'll, I, he seems like he has the potential to play better enough. I don't know. I, I think they they would like for Vogelbach to be sort of their first baseman of the future, uh, and I don't see anyone, including Peterson and the Miners, that would challenge that. But Vogelbach's gotten the majority of playing time I think in spring so far and they've seemed to like what they have seen so to the extent that that means anything at all I'll tip the scale slightly for Vogelback, which is not meant to be a dig at how big a guy he is although I realize that sounds very mean now <laughs> is some of the evidence of how a farm system that isn't considered very good can churn out an incredible talent sort of overnight there was the case of Edwin Diaz who sort of came to the rescue of the Mariners bullpen last year and in the in terms of the niche statistic strikeout rate minus walk rate, which we still don't have a good name for, these were the the top five pitchers last year: Andrew Miller, Kenley Jansen, Edwin Diaz, Dylan Batances, and Araldis Chapman. These are all phenomenal relief pitchers, some of the greatest relief pitchers on the planet. And so Diaz kind of had a little bit of a rough go early on. Figured out a slider, tweaked a slider, became a strikeout machine, etc. Was amazing. Fatigue in September. 
It doesn't matter anymore what happened in 2016. But now that you know what you know about Edwin Diaz, you've seen his stuff, you've seen how hitters have responded to him. Maybe you don't have a specific number, but about how many relievers in baseball would you take over Edwin Diaz for the season ahead? Oh, God. Well, I think it does kind of matter what version of him we're getting. Because, I mean, I think a lot of this was probably just fatigue because he had never thrown that many innings before. But he did sort of fall off a bit toward the end. And the fastball command got a little iffier. Uh, although the velocity was still mostly there, so I guess that's encouraging. Uh, I don't know. I I don't some more than zero, <laughs> l- less than l- less than twenty, less than fifteen. I don't. That's a hard question. Some. He's some. really good. I mean, I think he could be. I think he could be really good. And I put it this way: I worry more about the Mariners being bad and him being a really tantalizing trade prospect and then having to watch him pitch for someone else in the postseason than I do him being a complete disaster mm. just to go in a different dark direction. <laughs> this interview is like a good cop, bad cop routine. Jeff's like asking the <laughs> prospect questions and the Edwin Diaz and how many relievers exactly are better than Edwin Diaz. And I'm like, is Kyle Seeger good? <laughs> well, <laughs> do you, you like Kyle Seeger? <laughs> in you what specific inning on what day against what pitcher is Gene Segura <laughs> going to hit his 17th double? <laughs> oh man I was thinking of a Gene Segura question Like what would be a successful season for Gene Segura From your perspective Having given up Taiwan Walker for him And we know he's coming off a great year And we know that he had tragedy in the years before that That maybe could account for some of his poor on-field performance in those seasons So what does he have to do to make you not miss Taiwan Walker. I guess it sort of depends on whether Taiwan Walker turns into a great pitcher too, but just based on what we knew about everyone at the time the trade was made. Yeah, I had somebody in my in my Twitter mentions the other day who in a very well-meaning way, I'm sure was like, oh, Taiwan Walker's looked really good in spring. Gene Segura better light it up. And I was like, was that not true before Taiwan Walker was good in spring? Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that that was always true. I mean, I... Uh, I'm I'm refamiliarizing myself with his uh, some of his stats from from last season. I mean, I don't I I doubt strongly that he'll put up exactly that slash line again. Uh, and I think we could probably maybe expect that the power will fall off a little bit going to Safeco. Although who knows because we just hit home runs at Safeco now. That's like what they do. I think that if he is, I mean, certainly if he's somewhere between his 2016 and his 2013. That would be delightful. I would, considering what the Mariners got in shortstop production, uh, at least offensively uh, last year, if he turned in a, a year like his 2012, but with better uh, defensive production, that, that'd be fine. I'd be satisfied with that. I mean, I wouldn't love it for Taiwan Walker, but also who knows what they're going to get out of Taiwan. You know, he's one of those guys that you think is going to be great and then will break your heart. Um, so. Yeah. You should, you should tell the person in your mentions that in spring training 2015, Taiwan Walker allowed two runs in 27 innings. And then in regular season 2015, he allowed 92 runs in some more innings, but still not enough. Uh, as I guess a, a sort of last question before Ben asks you, presumably the, the record question. This question is related to that one because I wanted to know when. So I don't know your exact opinion of this Mariners team as it's constructed. I would assume it's more good than bad. But how does this feeling going into this particular season compare to, I don't know, the last 10 or 15 years of going into Mariners seasons? Because I know personally, I've never felt better about a baseball team than I felt about the Mariners going into 2010 when they had the worst season that I think they've had in franchise history. I was certain Mm. they were going to be amazing. My fandom is sort of dissipated. Yours is intact. So how do you feel about this team relative to, I guess, the last 5, 10, 15 versions of this team? Well, if it feels, uh, I don't know if you have this experience. It's weird to go into a Mariner season and have greater confidence in their, uh, offensive potential than their sort of pitching potential. And I'm still getting used to that experience personally as a fan because, I mean, I don't remember even some of those really, really bad teams. It's like, well, at least they have Felix and some of the pitching might be okay and we'll sort that out, but they're never going to score a run ever. And, and last year, there were a couple of moments where you looked at the Mariners and they would score six runs and you'd think to yourself, is that going to be enough, though? Because some of this pitching is pretty bad. So certainly, I feel better about them this year than I did going into, say, 2014. I feel better about them this year than I did going into last year. I felt great about them going into 2015, and then it was terrible. 
<laughs> so, you know, feelings might not be a great way of projecting baseball teams. I don't know. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel better, neither is projecting. I know. We're all just at the whims of fate and Jerry DePoto not trading us away to another fan base. Keep listening, everyone, but we are frauds. Having said that, what would your exact precise number for the Mariners win total be? I'm going to do the cheapest thing possible. I'm going to go with 84 wins, which is precisely between the fan graphs and Pocota projections. No, that sucks. Do a different one. <laughs> ben, do you we remember what We I won't accept. Uh, what did I, I can't remember what I projected. Actually, no, I do. I was the only person who got their projection exactly right mm. last year. The, the lovely folks at Banished to the Pen did, <laughs> yeah. a, did a breakdown of that. I don't know why, but they did. Right. I'll go with Pakoda. I'll go with the 85, which okay. puts them okay. squarely so in. So you, you allowed yourself to be persuaded. You should have yeah. stuck to your gut. <laughs> You, your gut was correct last year, just for the record. I know, but that was a panicked, uh, oh, crap, they're actually going to make me pick a number uh, moment. <laughs> well, I'm guessing neither of those numbers is quite good enough, most likely. I don't know. <laughs> I'm now asking you to project every other team in this <laughs> well, answer. Well, I mean, I think at least in the AL West, it's like the Astro you have the Astros and then you have this weird clump in the middle with the Mariners and the Rangers who will probably find another annoying way to like outperform their Pythag and be good in a way they shouldn't be. And then you have the Angels who are like this weird team where if people's arms don't fall off and, you know, Matt Shoemaker doesn't get hit in the head again, which please don't because that was terrifying and I was very worried. Mm -hmm. uh, they could be something because they have a Mike Trout. So who knows? There will be this weird soup in the AL West and maybe none of them will go or maybe we'll have like an all AL West playoffs. Could be fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll have a heart attack. It'll be great. <laughs> you can follow Meg on Twitter at Meg Raller. You can read her at Baseball Prospectus, where she writes award-winning articles. Congratulations, by the way, on the Thank Sabre you. Award. Thank you. And uh, always fun to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll be right back to talk about the Rockies with Jen Mac Ramos. back we're talking about the Rockies with Jen Mac Ramos who is the assistant general manager for the Sonoma Stompers which frankly I'm more interested in talking about but I'm going to try to restrain myself I'll save a Stompers question for the end perhaps although I will say that I had lunch in New York today with Stompers GM Theo Fightmaster which I assume means that you are in sole control of the Stompers right now you can do whatever you want exactly Exactly. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about the Rockies. It's been a rough past few days for the Rockies for multiple reasons. First, the news that Chad Bettis's cancer had spread and he's going to be out indefinitely while he deals with that and the prognosis is positive and hopefully he will be healthy and be able to play baseball again sometime soon, but not now. And then even more recently, it appears that Ian Desmond, of course, the controversial signing of the offseason has a hand fracture and will be out for some amount of time. What did you think of the Desmond signing? Were you in the camp with everyone else of this is weird and doesn't make sense or did you see any virtue to it? Yeah, I I didn't think it made any sense. From looking at the roster standpoint, you know, he just doesn't fit in really and you know, in the lineup, it just made no sense where where to find a place for him. And I know they might be going for some kind of like veteran leadership presence there, but at the same time they've got Carlos Gonzalez, they've got Nolan Arenado. You know, I just never made any sense in my head. Yeah. With Desmond coming and joining the Rockies, I think it's it's pretty clear that to make that sort of investment and then the subsequent investments they made, the Rockies clearly feel like they are sort of on the precipice of something they think that they are ready to contend. And if you, to be completely honest, if you look up and down their lineup, at least it's a it seems like, at least based on sort of name value, a frightening offensive lineup in a good way for the Rockies. It's just... 
there seems to be a good hitter everywhere except, you know, Tony Walters, but he's got his own specialty. And that's sort of powered by some pretty interesting breakouts last season from DJ LeMahieu and also Charlie Blackman. So to what extent, didn't even mention Trevor Sora, he was better than major leagues than I think most people expected him to be. So to what extent do you expect those sort of adjustments to carry over in this era where we're seeing players seemingly cement new levels of skill at the plate so quickly that maybe the the whole small sample size argument doesn't mean as much as it used to? How good are these non-Tony Walters seven regular Rockies offensive players? Yeah, I, th- I think they've proven that they can hit, and it's not just a byproduct of course Field, which I know a lot of people are like, oh, but Carlos Gonzalez probably hits all those home runs because Coors Field and the atmosphere, but the splits, while I don't really believe in splits that much, you know, they say he's a better hitter on the road. So I think they're all just coming into their own. They're making the adjustments that they need to make on the road and at home. And they've found a way to figure out what the league has. They figured out what they can do to make themselves a viable lineup. And I think that it's only going to get better, especially with young guys like Story, with guys like Arenado. They're going, they're going to find a way to scare pitchers. And I think that's one thing they've got going for them this season. And as you've watched the Rockies over the years and written about them at Purple Row, have you developed any philosophies of Coors Field and Gee, I wish the Rockies would build their team this way to outslug everyone and focus on offense or or the theory that maybe they should just get fastball pitchers because fastballs are less affected by course field. Are you swayed by any of those theories? And do you think that the Rockies have embraced any of those theories? I don't think that's like one of the things that they've embraced. I think that with a new new head of uh, player development, I believe it was um, over the last three seasons they've they've certainly focused a little bit more on how they develop their players and especially with pitchers and how they prepare for pitching in certain locations their high a team modesto used to be one of the more pitcher friendly teams and ballparks in the hitters league but now they're in lancaster which has an atmosphere and a playing field almost as similar as course so the rumor had it was like they're trying to prepare their pitchers by getting affiliates in areas that are like course field so it's really just they're trying to prepare their players as much as possible to expect the expected basically mm-hmm. with course field they're training their pitchers to know how to keep the ball down how to get ground ball outs how to not you know get that many fly balls and i think their philosophy is mainly just try to find ways to keep the ball in the park for pitchers and for hitters try to hit the ball out of the park and it's really just trying to find those extremes and also trying to find a middle ground that works trying to find that slap ball hitter who can get balls into the outfield by contact they have a couple of guys like that in the in the minor leagues and i think with this new system that they've had, they've just been developing guys as good as Trevor Story, guys like Walters, even though he can't hit. They've got the defense on their their side there. And that's one of the things that they've focused on a lot more. They've been focusing on getting that defense to be one of the best in baseball. So the last time, I guess I should preface by saying the last season, the Rockies finished last in baseball in bullpen win probability added, which is an annoying thing to say out loud, but it essentially means that the Rockies bullpen was a crucial reason why the Rockies were not better than they were. And if you look at the bullpen now, I think there's a lot of attention on the Rockies' young starting pitchers, and for good reason, they actually have some now. But in the bullpen, the last time Greg Holland had a full year when he was healthy, he was one of the best relievers in baseball. The last time, well, I guess even last season when Adam Montavino came back from injury, he looked like, in his short sample, one of the best relievers in baseball. And the last time that Jake McGee was healthy with the Rays, he was one of the best relievers in baseball. So the Rockies have the potential here for what looks like just a terrifying three-headed beast at the back end of the bullpen. But what is, what is I guess, your current amount of optimism that the that enough there is going to break right? Because if the Rockies can, I think, figure out how to close games in the eighth and ninth innings, then that could make a world of difference in their playoff hunt. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that was a big problem for them were um, injuries to the bullpen, especially with McGee being out for a while in about June and July. 
I think it's just trying to get these guys to come back healthy, get these guys to stay healthy all year. I think that would help so much in trying to close down games. I think that having also these young guys coming up like Carlos Estevez, they're building up a bullpen that has this potential, like you said, to be this big part of the team, but it's just whether or not they can be consistent and trying to find that consistency to pitch the games that they need to win and not lose a lot of leads. I think that it's just a lot of different factors that played into kind of a dismal bullpen last year, but if they can figure it out this year, there's there's no telling how strong that bullpen could be. And they were going to have to figure out at least one of those back-of-the-rotation spots. And for now, at least with Bettis out, they'll have to figure out two. So how do you think that will shake out or should shake out? Yeah, I think they're probably going to go to you know one of their younger guys. Not really sure who yet, but I think it wouldn't be surprising if they end up getting like one of their guys in the bullpen stretching them out for a little bit. I know guys like Zach Jemiola have that ability and it's probably going to be a couple of spot starts here and there by a rotation of random minor leaguers. But once they can figure out who's got the development, you know, they've hit their development peak, they're going to call that guy up. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's someone like um, Yancy Almonte, um, even though I think he might need a little bit more time in in triple a but they have a whole host of pitchers that have the ability to take bettis's spot last year david Dahl came up he and uh when he was a 22 year old he had an on-base of 359 which is less impressive than the 500 slugging percentage that he put up david Dahl is currently slated to start in left field i know he right now he has a stress reaction in one of his ribs so that's going to probably delay the start of his regular season but nevertheless David Dahl should be sort of the the other flank for Charlie Blackman. It's on the other side of Carlos Gonzalez. So Dahl, as a rookie, clearly hit the crap out of the ball when he hit it. He still didn't really walk very much, had a little bit of a strikeout problem, and this is uh, playing half the time in Coors Field where walks go up and strikeouts go down. So how optimistic are you about how David Dahl is going to be able to become an an everyday player for a team that is hoping to be in the race? Because there was a lot of uh, there was a lot to like about his rookie season, but still there were some statistical red flags that could mean more if we weren't talking about a 22-year-old rookie. Yeah, I think, you know, he is still 22, like you said, and I think that he can make the adjustments. One of the things that I've seen through the levels, he's a guy who's quick on his feet and can make the adjustments that he needs to make. And I think that that's just only going to improve even more this year. I think that keeping healthy is one of his biggest things, especially after that collision in the outfield a couple of years ago. And I know that health is probably one of the biggest concerns with Dahl, but if he can find a way to stay healthy, stay bubble wrapped, and he can make the adjustments needed. It seems as if we've been talking about Carlos Gonzalez for ever, basically. Will they trade him? Will they extend him? Has been a, a recent discussion. How much longer do you expect Carlos Gonzalez to be in Denver? I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up leaving maybe this season or in the off season. I think it all depends on Raimel Tapia's development. I think that Gonzalez has become a little bit expendable, even though he's got great defense, the great bat, the stats to back it up. It would make more sense if Blackman ended up being one of the guys that end up being unloaded from the team. But, you know, all signs point to Gonzalez just because of all the rumors over the years. And I think it's just a matter of when are they going to have someone ready to replace him? Mm -hmm. Follow up. Do you want to just speculate about Ramel Tapia's development (laughs) since you brought it up? (laughs) Yeah, I think Tapia is obviously going to start the year in AAA Albuquerque. I think that he's got a lot of adjustments to make. He still still makes a lot of weird routes to the ball in the, in the outfield, and I think defense would be one of his biggest liabilities on the field. 
and he's got to work on that in Albuquerque. I think that he's got the speed. He's got a good eye for baseball. He can hit, but that stance is a little weird, and they've been kind of tinkering with his two-strike approach at the plate, and it hasn't really worked to a lot of their predictions, and I think that he's going to be tinkering a lot with his approach. He's going to be tinkering a lot with his swing, and I think that that's probably going to keep him down in AAA for at least the season. He'll, If he's not up by June or July, he'll probably be a September call-up because he does need a lot more work on that. So I'm just waiting for this page to load, but we're going to go back to a, another Coors Field question because you, you can't not do it. And over the course of, of, I guess, in this millennium, so since the year 2000, which whatever, that's a good enough starting point, the Rockies rank 28th in baseball and overall winning percentage, which is not very surprising. They mostly have not been good, aside from going to the World Series. So 28th winning percentage overall. When they've been at home, they actually rank in 12th place between the Blue Jays and the Indians. That doesn't matter. 12th place at home in winning percentage. And then, of course, on the road, probably unsurprisingly, they are in last place. They are worse than the Pirates. They are worse than the Royals. Both of those teams have been good recently, but you should not forget that for most of the millennium, they've been horrible horrible baseball operations. So it's no secret that there is a huge home road swing for the Rockies. Is the home field advantage that the Rockies experience stronger or weaker or just the same as the road field disadvantage that they also experience? I think their home field advantage is probably a little bit stronger. They do have those weird park factors that play into their favor. But at the same time, you know, without without a good bullpen closing out those games, they can just as easily lose games at home. But you know, on the road, they have those individual players who can hit really well, but they can't seem to cobble it together as a team and they can't string together wins. So I'd have to say that, you know, their home field advantage is a lot stronger than their disadvantage on the road. But at the same time, they can easily lose just as many games at home. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about the Rockies front office? Because they aren't really a front office that talks a whole lot or it's hard to kind of classify them based on their this type of front office or that type of front office. And so you end up looking at some of the weird moves they make, whether it's the Desmond signing or signing lefty relievers for too much money or whatever it is. And you kind of conclude that maybe they don't know what they're doing. And yet it's a a different group of people than the group of people that didn't know what they were doing a while ago. So do you feel any better about them? Just reading the local coverage, maybe more than I do. Do you get the sense that they know what they're talking about, that they have a plan or that this promising team has developed almost in spite of itself? I think the Rockies front office is some sort of an enigma. I think that they have a sense of what their goal is, but the ways they get to their goal are just bizarre and sometimes don't make sense. And other times they do make sense. So I think that they're just trying to see what sticks and what works. And if they fail, then they fail, but they're not going to let it be the death of them. They're going to keep trying and rising up from that failure. And I don't know how to classify this front office. It's such a weird front office that you don't know what they're focusing on the most and you don't know what they're going to do next. But at the same time, I know that they're focusing a lot on their farm system. And I know that they're trying to put a lot of effort into their scouting department and their player dev department. And I think that's really the only clear thing that I know about the Rockies is that they're trying to prep their guys for Coors Field as much as they can. But when they get to Coors Field, that's when it seems like all hell breaks loose. Sort of related, I'm going to ask maybe too broad of a question, but uh, last a few months ago, I sort of asked the Fangraphs community to rate their favorite organizations just sort of overall. And uh, the Dodgers were given, I think, basically tied for the third best rating in all of baseball. The Giants were not far behind them. And then all sort of around or near the back 10, the Rockies were given a below average rating. And then there was still a pretty sizable gap for the Diamondbacks and then the Padres who were second to last. But just looking at this division and keeping in mind all of the the talent that the Rockies have in the roster, but also the 
the variables they have to deal with and this enigma, as you said, of a front office. Out of the Dodgers, Giants, Rockies, Diamondbacks, and Padres, where would you sort of place the Rockies as an organization out of the five? Oh, man. They kind of fall. I'll spot you the Dodgers probably first. <laughs> yeah. Do- it'd probably go like Dodgers, Giants, and maybe a little bit of a gap. And I'd probably put the Rockies ahead of the Diamondbacks and the, and the Padres, those two. Um probably far down on the list even though it's a list of five but you know the Rockies are kind of middling in there still a little bit below average when the average is pretty pretty low when you have three teams of that low caliber in the division and for as much talent as they have you know it's trying to figure out what to do with that talent trying to figure out how to play these guys who works best in what role and I think that's one of their disadvantages that makes them lose so many games and makes them makes their front office look a little bit worse than than a lot of others if you had to take a tyler you want anderson or chatwood (laughs) you only get one tyler oh man (laughs) i'd probably go with anderson Uh it's very close yeah i think i think anderson shows a lot of promise i think that trying to find a role for him on the staff would be work to his advantage and i think it's just trying to keep him healthy as well Mm -hmm. i'm certain that the rockies have a curse of injuries over the last few years i feel a little bad going on and we haven't i don't think even said a word about nolan arenado i think it feels almost obligatory i don't even have a good question about nolan arenado but he's i think he's far younger than people might assume if they assume anything he still hasn't even turned 26 and you look at his numbers and clearly he is in the realm of a potential young superstar. But do you think that there is another sort of level to his game that's within his reach? Uh, is this what you think he's going to be? But if there is another level, what do you think that that would entail given what his skill set already is? I think he's capable of improving upon his already video game-like numbers. I think that he can reach maybe a little bit below Mike Trout status in terms of MVP caliber and in terms of just being this great big figure in baseball of, oh, hey, that guy's really good at this game. Just like one of those names that everyone will recognize universally as really good at baseball. I think Arenado is only going to keep improving. And that's saying a lot for him because it seemed like before his ceiling was a little bit lower than most people would have thought. But I think he's just completely blowing that ceiling off. So there was a post on Fangraphs by one Jeff Sullivan in the middle of last month called DJ LeMahieu Gets No Respect. How much respect should DJ LeMahieu get? I guess I'm essentially asking you after he's coming off of a couple of career years in a row, whether you think he can sustain most or some of what he did last year. How good is he? He is way too underrated in baseball. And I think I think the Rockies have a bit of a hidden gem in their infield there. I think that he doesn't get as much respect as he deserves in the game and and I think that he's been snubbed for a lot of things like he he should be a perennial all-star at this point um for whatever the all-star game is worth I think that he's a lot better than everyone thinks he is all right you want to give us a win total prediction for the 2017 Rockies I'm going to say somewhere between 73 and 75 wins. <laughs> okay, is, there's only is... <laughs> there's only one number between those two. <laughs> um, it's, just, it's still a lot more optimistic than most people. <laughs> All right. Well, I think there was optimism, at least, I don't know, maybe before the, the recent injuries, the Rockies were kind of a popular breakout surprise team pick to the point that I don't know whether it would be a surprise if they actually surprised but maybe after these couple of injuries, people have bumped them down a bit. So we're going with 74, I'm going to call it. All right. That's reasonable. Um, ben makes okay. the call. <laughs> well, I won't ask you for a Stompers win total prediction. But just because you are, I think, the only 
guest that we're going to have on this series who works for a professional baseball team. Could you just summarize what your job entails for people who might be curious about what assistant GM means in indie ball? Yeah, in indie ball, it means that I'm heading up ticket sales, also helping sell sponsorships, also helping create a database for stats for baseball ops and mm-hmm. also dealing with day-to-day activities like um, reading through emails of a lot of players trying to say, hey, will you look at my video <laughs> of me hitting off a tee? I have read many of those emails and they're <laughs> almost entirely worthless, but you still kind of have to read them. Yeah, so it's it's been interesting. It's been uh, It's been a lot... A lot of different different areas that I never thought I would have worked in, like ticket sales and uh, selling sponsorships. But it's it's a good all around balance. Mm-hmm. All right, well, go Stompers. Hope you enjoy the job. <laughs> you, you can find Jen's website at jenmacramos.com and also on Twitter at jenmacramos. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so include Michael McClellan, Peter Lopilato, Andy, Jason Brooks, and Linus Marco. Thank you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, which now has over 5,500 members. I'm about to post a link in there to the latest installment of Craig Wright's newsletter, a page from baseball's past. He wrote an entry about Ned Carver and I'd encourage you all to subscribe for those who don't know about pages from baseball's past. Craig Wright was probably the first full-time statistical analyst employed by a team, and he digs up these great historical nuggets and posts them on his newsletter, which you can get at baseballspast.com, no apostrophe. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, and you can keep your questions coming to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also reach us through the Patreon messaging system if you're looking for something else to listen to. Before our next episode, Michael Bowen and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We talked about the WBC and spring training and a couple of players Michael talked to on his trip to Arizona, Cole Hamels and Brandon Geyer. And we talked to Dan Rosenheck from The Economist about the significance of spring training stats. You can find that on the Ringer MLB show feed and we will talk to you soon. Thanks to everyone.